The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Paul desperately wanted the fuck. He was 17 years old, for Christ's sake. Everyone he knew was fucking. Except for him. It didn't make any sense. Statistically speaking, there were more girls at his high school than boys. He should have been chosen by now. He didn't even care by who. Anybody would do. If all the girls at his high school were getting laid, then why was he still a hopeless, pathetic virgin? Were the girls sharing dicks? What was wrong with his? It worked perfectly fine, and he wanted to prove it. He needed to prove it. He couldn't explain it. Maybe it was a feeling of inadequacy. Everywhere he looked, people were fucking. On the TV, on the internet, in school. He caught Sean Callahan and Nancy Hyacin in the football parking lot the other week. Their legs stuck out the windows, her white tennis shoes tied to her feet, her panties were hanging from her ankles, and all you could see in the car was Sean's bare, hairy ass thrusting into the car seat like an animal. Paul remembered her panties had been red. Silky, he thought. He wanted to be the wild animal in the car, releasing all his animalistic urges once and for all. He had them just like everyone else, animalistic urges. He wanted to fuck. Everyone wanted to fuck. 
He was the only one who couldn't seem to, though. No one wanted him. They would take Howard Larson over him, and that was really saying something. Howard Larson worked at Burger King after school. His face was covered with zits the size of those mini bouncy balls you'd get out of the quarter machine. You'd take one look at those things and just want to thwack it as hard as you could until it exploded hamburger grease all over the place. Plus, he had glasses. Huge, black-framed sons of bitches that he constantly had to push up the bridge of his nose on account of sweating so much. It was also the same kid that had gotten a blowjob from Cindy Grace in the Burger King public bathroom. At least that was the rumor. Might have just been a handy. Paul would have killed for a handy. He would have killed for anything. He needed a release. And jerking off just wasn't doing it anymore. It was too lonely and depressing. Hiding away in his bedroom, playing the Rolling Stones to drown out the noise, and just whacking away over muted sex videos online. Even the sex videos were depressing. Watching those women whom he would never meet in real life. Knowing that deep down, they didn't give a single shit about Paul. They were just there for the money. Most of the time, he wasn't even able to come because he'd sit there imagining what they were thinking. Sure, they were moaning and doing a convincing enough job of enjoying getting pounded in the ass, but he was sure that in their heads, all they could think about was how a thousand creeps would be watching this, touching their pathetic small cocks and drooling. It must have creeped them out. They creeped Paul out. No, he couldn't do the sex videos anymore. He wanted his own movie star just for himself. He needed to fuck It was Bobby Wilburn that first told him about the woman living on Rosewood Boulevard. They were in the woods behind high school, sharing a badly wrapped blunt. P.E. class would not miss their absence. Bobby was probably Paul's best friend, and they weren't even that close. Bobby still hung out with Paul because they'd been thick as thieves back in elementary school. So maybe it was kind of a pity thing, Paul guessed. Bobby had sex all the time. They were nothing alike anymore. Paul inhaled on the blunt a little too strongly and became lightheaded. He worried about falling down and embarrassing himself in front of his pseudo-friend, but he decided he didn't care. He kind of hoped he did fall. Have you done it too? Paul asked, trying to take his mind off the fact that the trees were swirling around his face like kaleidoscope vision. Done what? Bobby took the half-smoked blunt and puffed it like he'd been doing it for years. You know, visited her, that woman. Oh, no, I haven't. Lucy would cut off my nuts if I ever did something like that. But like I was saying, Steve did. He told me about it last month. What happened? Bobby laughed. What do you think happened, man? They boned. He said it was the best laid ever had in his life. But between you and me, I doubt that's really saying much, considering who we're talking about. He stopped and gave Paul a look similar to a look Paul had given a schoolmate when he'd made a suicide joke to her in math class, only remembering afterward that her mother had hung herself the previous summer. Oh shit, you're a virgin, aren't you? What? Paul squeaked. He'd been caught. The charade was over. 
Of course I'm not a fucking virgin. Jesus Christ. Bobby looked at him suspiciously, not fooled. Who have you been with? Paul didn't have to think hard. He simply recalled the image that came to mind whenever he didn't have internet access for his sex videos. Morgan Summers. You're full of shit. Paul shook his head. No, really, last fall at that Halloween party. We both got wasted off a spiked punch and did it in the backyard. In reality, however, he had gotten drunk at the party alone, wandered outside, and found Morgan fucking the captain of the football team on the grass. He liked to imagine it had been him, though. Maybe one day it would be. Bobby stopped laughing and gave him a serious look. Damn, bro. I actually heard about that. But I thought she'd been with Ronnie. That was me, Paul smiled at the idea. Wow. (laughs) Never thought I'd hear that one. Hot damn. Paul finished off the blunt and flicked it into some leaves. It was most likely a huge fire hazard, but he was simply too high to care. So anyway, about this woman. Yeah? What do you know? Well, Steve told me he found out about her from one of his dumbass cousins. She's just this prostitute, man. Some whore. But I guess she's amazing. Like, from out of this world. Cheap, too, apparently. Real cheap. He told me she suffers from nymphomania or some shit. So it's not really like she's doing you a favor, but the other way around. On Rosewood Boulevard? Paul said. Yeah. Where at, though? What house? Bobby tried to think, but his face made the scrunched-up look like he'd swallowed a lemon. I don't know. I think of the one with that crazy tree out front. The crazy tree. He knew the one. Paul stood out on the sidewalk, staring at it. There were no leaves on it emphasizing the stripped branches springing from the base like dying hands sticking out of the grave. Arms twisted and curved at impossible angles. It made him sick to his stomach just to look at it. Yet, he couldn't look away. Beyond the tree was the house. It looked like every other house on Rosewood Boulevard. The only distinguishing feature about this place was the tree. But inside this house, there was something new. Something Live Oak was not used to. This was a town of high standards. It prided itself on its football team, on its politics. It did not tolerate filth. It did not know about what was living inside the house on Rosewood Boulevard. It did not know about the prostitute. The whore. Paul brought 25 bucks with him. He wondered if it would be enough. Maybe he should have just gone back home. Do it another day. No. He mentally punched himself in the face. If he didn't do this, right here, right now, then he would forever hate himself. Every night he laid in bed, depressed because he never got chances like this. And now he had one of those chances. A chance to change everything. This was the moment. He wanted to fuck? 
Well, this is where you fucked. Paul rang the buzzer and waited on the porch. He waited a good five minutes. The day was quiet. The day was still. Just when he was about to give up and go home, the door swung open, revealing a tall, strong woman standing behind it. Not a girl, but a woman. She was a little taller than Paul, with red hair that dropped all the way to her ass. The outer edges of her eyes were shaded purple, as were her lips. She wore a black dress, kind of see-through and silky, but it didn't reveal much skin, like a dress you'd wear on Halloween, Paul thought. But that was all he thought, for his breath had been stolen. The woman stood there at the door and looked Paul over slowly, then smiled a smile that made his heart skip a beat. Hi there, she purred. Paul continued to stand there on the porch, not saying anything. All he could do was look. You gonna say anything, stranger? She asked. Paul coughed. It had gotten very hot all of a sudden. His skin felt like it was in a microwave. Uh, hi. Can I help you with something? Um, uh... Well, I, uh... The woman smiled. Yes, I can help you with something. Come on in, boy. Paul did what he was told. It was almost dreamlike how he followed her through the darkly lit house. There was a long hallway. Then they were in the kitchen. She told him to have a seat and asked if he wanted a glass of iced tea. Yes, that would be nice, thank you. Sure thing, honey. The woman brought two tall glasses of iced tea to the table and sat down next to him. She handed him one of the glasses and watched him take a drink. It was good. Very good. My name's Lily. What's yours? Paul. Well, Paul, would you like to tell me who told you about me? Paul gulped, suddenly feeling like he was in trouble. Jesus, what was he thinking? Stupid, stupid. Paul. Huh. Kid at school. What's this kid's name? Not wanting to squeal on one of his only friends, he said, Steve. Steve Luntz. The woman nodded. Ah. She took a drink of her iced tea. I know Steve. Steve was a bad apple. He didn't listen to what I said. Are you a bad apple too, Paul? No, ma'am. That's good, Lily said. Because I like my apples to be good. She gave Paul a playful squeeze on the knee, and he flinched. He had to adjust his legs to hide the sudden erection rubbing against his jeans. Lily smiled. You ever had sex before, Paul? No, ma'am. The kitchen was becoming very, very small. He wanted to leave. This was wrong. But it was right, too. He didn't know what to think, so he took another drink of his iced tea. Mmm, she said. That's good. That's real good. Ma'am, I like them when they're innocent like you. 
They give me their all. Oh? That's why you're here, yes? You want to go to bed with me? Paul hesitated. Yes, ma'am. Tell me. He stopped thinking. It all felt so much like a dream, he figured he might as well treat it as a dream. A dream, which was like life, only without consequence. Tell me, Paul. Her hand traveled from his knee and rubbed up his leg, stopping at his crotch. She gave it a soft squeeze. Tell me. I want to go to bed with you, he whispered. How bad? She asked, leaning closer than any female had ever been to him. She nibbled his ear, and he felt his whole body tighten. Bad. What will you do for me? Anything. Anything you want. Good. She whispered. Because I'll also give you anything you want. It felt like the buttons on his jeans were going to pop off and go shooting across the room like the cork from a wine bottle. You. I want you. Well then, let's go. They had to walk through this impossibly long hallway to get to the bedroom. The whole time Paul followed behind, his eyes remained glued to the curves in her ass, watching it bounce back and forth with each step. The bedroom itself was dark, very dark. The woman wasted no time in pushing Paul in the bed. She carefully stripped him of all clothing while he lay there helplessly. This was really happening. Jesus Christ. Then she took her clothes off. The thin rays of sun from the closed blinds revealing pale white skin. She got on the bed with him and slowly crawled up his body. He felt her nipples rubbing against his skin and it made him insanely hard. He didn't know what to do. Then they were face to face and she was prying apart his mouth with her own mouth and penetrating his face with her tongue. It welcomed itself among his teeth and gums and tongue and flicked at him like crazy. The woman was hungry, and she was feeding. He was her meal. Paul could only lay there, arm on either side of him, and let it happen. He wanted it more than anything in the world. He didn't know what to do about it, though. But this woman knew exactly what to do, and that's what she was doing taking charge then he noticed the smell it hit him hard before he'd been too distracted to notice but now in the dark with her tongue going nuts in his mouth all he could think about was the smell like fish he thought like a bucket of dead half gutted fish left out in the sand all day under the sun It smelled warm. Then she sat up, straddling his lap and slid down his painfully hard cock. It was entirely wetter than he expected, almost sickly wet. It reminded him of that time when he was a kid and his parents had taken him to that haunted house for Halloween. There was this special attraction there where they blindfolded you and made you feel all these different horrorish sensations. They were all supposed to be body parts, according to the haunted house. 
Like, the meatballs were eyes, the egg foo young was a heart, and the bowl of spaghetti? That was supposed to be guts. He remembered how old and stale it felt, how much sauce they dumped in the bowl. His hand slid in that bowl, and he was instantly greeted with the warm, disgusting sauce. He wanted to pull out right away, but there was so much goddamn sauce. His hands slid ever deeper until they were rubbing against the bottom of the bowl, nearly elbow deep in the stuff. It was the spaghetti sauce he thought about now. The woman, Lily, rocked her hips back and forth on top of Paul, moaning louder than he expected. It was all very exciting and frightening. The smell grew stronger as the sex continued. He almost started gagging but stopped himself by reaching around and squeezing her ass, pulling him closer against her. He felt completely trapped underneath her, and he loved it. Yes. Oh, yes, the woman moaned. You are a good one. Yes, you are going to be very, very special. Oh, yes. Yes. Paul moaned back. Then he came. Hard. His whole body convulsed and he wrapped his arms around her, squeezing her tight like she was the only thing stopping him from free-falling a thousand feet. Everything went dizzy, and he heard her moaning softly next to him, breathing just as heavy as he was. We are going to do wonderful things together, she whispered. Yes, he said. Afterward, She turned on the nightstand lamp and went into the bathroom next to the bedroom, leaving Paul flat on his back in bed. He didn't move. He felt completely content. No wonder everyone did this. He couldn't imagine anything better. This was the meaning of life right here. For as long as he lived, he would simply need no other answers. He sniffed and grimaced. The smell hadn't left. Jesus, what the hell was that? It was awful. Like fish. Old, rancid fish gutted and left in the sun. He followed the smell and glanced down his body. His eyes widened at the sight of him. What the fuck? This wasn't normal. This never happened in the sex videos. What the hell was this? Blood. It was blood. All over him. On his stomach, on his thighs, on his cock. The head looked like it had been dipped in a jar of pasta sauce. Only this wasn't pasta sauce. It was fucking blood. Oh my God, he cried quietly and jumped off the bed. He ran into the bathroom with Lily almost to tears. What the hell did you do to me? Still sitting on the toilet, the woman took one look at him and frowned. Yuck, that was a lot messier than I thought it'd be. What are you talking about? What happened to me? She shook her head dismissively. Nothing happened to you, honey. That's all me. Sorry, I should have told you. I bleed. You bleed? All women do, honey. Paul paused, looked at Lily, then backed out at his cock. 
blood was running down his leg. He sniffed. The smell made him want to kill himself. He turned and stepped into the glass shower and turned the hot faucet all the way to the left. He only managed to vomit twice before he was clean. Over the next two weeks, Paul visited Lily a total of nine more times. He couldn't help himself. It was like an addiction. She was the heroine, and he was the pathetic junkie, totally lacking a will of his own. Even when they were in the middle of fucking, he'd be craving the next time they'd be able to do it again. And the best thing was, she didn't even charge him money. Whenever he asked how much she wanted, she would just smile and kiss him and tell him that he was enough. She wanted him. Nothing else would compare. Every man wished to hear those words. He couldn't have been luckier. The only thing he didn't wish for was the blood. And of course, the accompanying smell. He'd always thought that it was only supposed to last like a week. And then go away for the rest of the month. Yet, it still persisted. If anything, she bled more as they continued the sex. The thought revolted him. It'd make him gag just thinking about it, and afterward he would swear never to do it again, not until the menstrual cycle finally passed. But then a day would pass and he would find himself running back to her house on Rosewood Boulevard, knocking feverishly and taking off his clothes before he was even all the way in through the front door. He would completely forget about the blood until they were in the bedroom, and she was sliding down on his cock, that smell of rotten fish raping his nostrils. One afternoon, a month or so after their relationship began, Paul was in the bathroom wiping himself off with a towel. Lily was standing in front of the mirror fooling with makeup. Paul couldn't take it anymore. He felt that he'd had enough sex by now to question things. Sure. He was by no means a pro, but he felt like he at least knew a little bit now. Lily, he said, trying to breathe out of his mouth. Yes, baby. I want to ask you something. The blood, she said. It wasn't a question. Yes. She nodded in the mirror. I know, you're probably confused. You think I should have stopped bleeding by now? It's been over a month. I know. But here's what you don't understand, baby. What? It never stops. I always bleed. He paused, not knowing what to say. How? Why? It's my curse, Lily said. Some women, they only cursed once a month. Me? I'm cursed for life. I don't understand. Neither do I, she said. That's just the way it is. Always has. I hate it just as much as you do. I wish it would go away. Do you wish the same? Of course, he said. Then added as an afterthought, But I still want to be with you regardless. Lily smiled. That's sweet, baby. But it doesn't have to be so bloody. You know that? We can make the blood go away. Paul was confused. If she could make it go away, why hadn't she done it before? How? I would need your help. What would you need? She closed her eyes and sighed. 
It was obvious she didn't want to talk about this no more than Paul wanted to hear it. But these things couldn't be avoided. I would need your total devotion, Lily said at last. I would need you to be mine and myself to be yours. He could feel his dick shriveling up into his body as he stood there in the bathroom, the coldness of the tiled floor sending shivers up his legs. I thought I was yours, he said, confused. I thought you were mine. She reached over and touched his cheek. Not yet, baby. You have to really mean it. You have to tell me that you would do anything for me. That you would give me your soul. Promise to devote the rest of your breaths to serving my needs. Her hand trailed down his naked body and cupped his balls. She squeezed gently. Anything you want, Paul whispered. I am yours forever. Good. She kissed him. Paul felt a chill zap through his whole body. He suddenly became much lighter than he was used to. Weightless. She led him back to the bedroom and pushed him onto the mattress. Despite having just ejaculated, Paul had no trouble growing erect again. She straddled on top of him and went wild. Paul watched in awe, studying her face as she moaned. He didn't move the whole time, even when he finally came again. His facial expression did not alter from the same drugged, monotonous look. Then she lay down beside him, breathing heavy, and the trance broke. Jesus Christ, he sighed, ready to pass out from exhaustion. No, she whispered in his ear. He has nothing to do with this. When he went into the bathroom to shower again, he noticed that his cock was completely bloodless. But it worked. What he'd said, he'd fixed her. She was better now. Normal. He looked at his cock for a long time before returning to bed and falling asleep. This was the start of something new. Paul heard the words, but he didn't quite understand what she meant. Of course, deep down, he knew damn well what she meant. But another part of him found her words completely alien. This just didn't make any sense. It shouldn't have been a surprise. Not once had he used protection when they fucked. They warned you about these kinds of things in sex education all the time. But he didn't know. Once she pulled him into her house... The thought just never crossed his mind. But now, now she was pregnant. How is this possible, he said. They were sitting at the kitchen table drinking iced tea. He couldn't remember the last time he'd been home. I think you know how it's possible, she said. Last night, you gave yourself to me, and I accepted. These are the consequences. Now... Are you man enough to accept this new responsibility? He didn't think he was. Then she kissed him. Suddenly he felt like he could take on the whole world. Yes, he said. I'm ready. Good. Because we're going to have babies. And I need a man who will be here 
I'll be there for our baby. I'm going to need someone to protect our family, she said. I'll protect our family with my last dying breath. He realized he couldn't remember his mother's face and wondered if she worried about him. Then he decided he didn't care. He had a new family to look after now. There's someone you need to deal with. What? Paul said. They were laying in bed a few weeks later. They'd just gotten done fucking again, and now he was cuddled up next to her, rubbing her swollen stomach. He could already feel their baby kicking at him. Everything he had learned about pregnancies no longer voiced itself in his head. This was what was real. The woman on Rosewood Boulevard was his only reality now. Do you remember that boy, Steve? Lily asked. The one who told you about me? He didn't like where this was going. Yeah, of course I remember him. Well, he used to visit me like you, but he wasn't good enough. He left me. He called me names. He called me a whore. No. Yes. The other day when you went out to the store, he came back. He was mean to me, Paul. He said he was going to tell the whole town about me, about what I'm doing. What do you mean? He knows about me and you, honey. If people found out about this, that would be hell to pay. People wouldn't approve. They'd hate me and make sure I burned. They'd make me and our baby go far, far away. Do you want that to happen? He felt the baby kick again. No, he said. Nothing bad will happen to you, I promise. Will you take care of this boy? Yes. You'll make sure that he's never able to hurt us? Yes. Promise me, Paul. For our baby. For our family. I promise. He had never been good friends with Steve, but they talked on occasion. He'd been to his house a few times to play video games. It wasn't that far a walk from Rosewood Boulevard. The house overshadowed his presence like the sun over the earth. He didn't know what he was even doing here, but he had a feeling he would know when the time came. Right now, he was just going with it. He tried not to think about the knife sheathed in the back of his pants. The doorbell rang, and after a few moments, Steve's mother answered the door. She took one look at Paul and grimaced, taking a step back. Oh my God, she said. Are you okay? Yes, of course. Thank you. Is Steve home? She gave him another doubtful look and said, Um, yeah, him and Bobby are in his room. Go ahead. She left the doorway and allowed him entrance. He walked down the hallway to where he remembered the bedroom being and pushed open the door. Steve was sitting on the ground playing his PlayStation. Bobby Wilburn was next to him, also gripping a controller. They both turned their heads at once and gave Paul a look of absolute terror. Jesus Christ, Bobby said. What the hell happened to you, Paul? Steve jumped to his feet. You were with her, weren't you? I fucking knew it. Everyone was saying you'd skip town. But no, not me. As soon as Bobby told me he told you about that whore, I knew right away what happened. Holy shit. She really got you bad. Are you okay? Don't call her that. Paul took a step forward. What? Steve said. Listen, you need to sit down. I'll call the police. This time they'll believe me. 
That fucking bitch. I don't even know what she is. I'm glad I got out before it was too late. I was there the other day trying to find you, and I swear to God, I thought she was going to kill me. That whore is evil. Shut your goddamn mouth, Paul said again. Hey, uh, Paul, relax. Bobby stood up and put a hand on his shoulder. Paul reacted almost immediately, reaching behind his back, pulling out the kitchen knife and thrusting it into the side of Bobby's stomach. Bobby let out an unnatural gasp and bent over. Before anyone could even react, Paul took the knife out and slammed the blade down in the back of Bobby's neck. A dozen droplets of blood splattered on Paul's face. Bobby fell to the ground. Still. Steve just stood there on the other side of the room, dazed. The crotch of his blue jeans had turned dark. No, he whispered. Please don't do this. Paul took a few more steps forward. He did not blink. You threatened my family, he said. What? Steve groaned, pressing up against the wall with no chance of escape. You want to kill my baby? Paul asked him, holding the knife up against the boy's throat. No! Jesus Christ, no! I don't even know what you're talking about! Please don't do it! Oh my God! Paul cocked his head and growled like a dog on the prowl. My family is all I have, and I must protect them. I have no choice. Steve tried to push away, but Paul countered with a headbutt, breaking Steve's nose instantly and sending him flying back against the wall. He leaped on top of his prey like a hungry animal. Oh shit! Get off me! No! Please! Paul drove the knife into Steve's stomach, pulled it out and stabbed him again, then again. With each stab, Steve let out an exhausted breath. It excited Paul, made him wish he was back home with his woman, his family. Paul paused, looking Steve in his dying eyes. He held the tip of the blade up to his neck, panting. The last thing Steve said was, Jesus, that smell, it's all over you. And then the knife slid his Adam's apple to shreds, and he said no more. Oh my God, said a voice from behind him. He jumped up and spun around, spotting Steve's mother in the doorway. She was shaking something terrible, looking at Paul like he was a monster. What have you done? She cried. What was necessary? She turned around and ran down the hallway. Like a lion, Paul took off after her. The knife gripped in his fist. His eyes stung of the blood caught in them. He didn't let it bother him as he ran through the house, chasing after the woman. The front door swung open and Paul's heart sank. He couldn't let her escape. She would tell everyone, and his family would be ruined. He had to protect his family. Paul sprinted outside and leaped off the porch steps. Steve's mother was already in the middle of the street, screaming bloody murder. He had to silence her before it was too late. She had made the mistake of assuming he wouldn't follow her outside and stopped running. Paul ran up from behind and punched the knife into her spine, causing her to bend at an odd angle and collapse to the ground. The street was empty, save for the two of them. No cars were in sight. The neighborhood was theirs. Paul got on top of her, screaming that he had no choice, that he had to protect his babies, that there was no other way. He then began to stab the knife into her cheek and didn't stop until her face was the equivalent of a gutted jack-o'-lantern. I'm sorry, he whispered again, dropping the bloody knife on the street. My family. And with that, he ran. 
back home in the house on Rosewood Boulevard. Back home, in the house on Rosewood Boulevard, Paul lay cuddled up to his one and true love. They couldn't have been more content. The bed sheets were soaked in blood, but it didn't bother him so much this time. It wasn't the same kind of blood. Paul smiled at the sight of his new babies. Just a few hours old, and they were already scuttling around. He watched them climb up the walls, then onto the ceiling, looking back down at him as they explored this new world he and his darling had brought them in. They were beautiful. The woman kissed him softly on his lips, and he kissed her back. His family was safe for the moment, and the next time a new danger threatened them, he would not hesitate to do what was necessary. He would protect them with his last dying breath. Today's episode featured a story by Max Booth III, Fish. This story was formally published on Amazon, and a link can be found in the show notes. If you'd like more information on Max Booth III and his work, please visit talesfromthebooth.com and follow him on Twitter at GiveMeYourTeeth. Artwork for today's show was created by Barney Botuana. You can see more of Barney's work at www.barneybotuana.com. And you can interact with Barney on Twitter at Barney Botuana. Barney, I just realized I've never asked you how to pronounce your last name. I apologize. Folks, take a look at Barney's artist photo in the show notes for today, and you'll understand why I'm terrified that I might have gotten it wrong. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to C. Brian Brown for a great story last week, and to Stephen Matico for the kick-ass art. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, Shadows at the Door, at shadowsatthedoor.com, sanitariummagazine.com, and rickertandbeaglebooks.com. If you're local to Pittsburgh, stop in and see the perfectly strange and strangely perfect selection. And before I forget, if you're local, our good friend David J. Fairhead from Kettle Whistle Radio is going to be having a book release party for his collection of short stories, Dwelling in the Dark. That's July 15th at 2003 East Carson Street from 8 to 10 p.m. If you want more information, you can check them out at www.fairlydarkproductions.com. Please share the terror. Share the show. Help us grow. The best support you can give us is to give us a rating in iTunes. You can also find us in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Ratings are free and they mean a lot to us. Next Friday, July the 17th, the wait is over. Sign up now to get our new monthly newsletter. And this month, you'll be getting a bonus story from Caitlin Marceau. There's also going to be a new Victoria and the Librarian cartoon, extra content, fun stuff. We'll be giving away a great wicked prize as well. 
sign up at www.thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Max Booth III. So today my guest is Max Booth III. We had Max's story fish today. And uh, Max, I got to tell you, it was a great story. It's one of my favorites so far. Thank you. It was just a lot of fun to read and a lot of fun to, to get into the minds of the, the characters. Can you tell me a little bit about where the story came from? And I know you told me that it fits into the genre of, of splatterpunk. So I was just curious a little bit about what distinguishes splatterpunk from traditional horror and, and other subgenres. Yeah, yeah. I used to think it fit an old splatterpunk. I'm not so positive now. I wrote it for a splatterpunk anthology and was rejected. So maybe it doesn't fit too, too much. Okay. A lot of people, they seem to think splatterpunk is mostly about extreme whole like blood and guts. That's it. But I think splatterpunk is more of a movement than a genre, less focused on the blood and more focused on like the punk aspect of the world. John Skip, he had this interview he did in, um, the splatterpunk sign, and he said it best. Splatterpunk is about challenging society with shocking ideas. So if you have nothing to challenge society and you're just writing about random guts, I don't think that's exactly splatterpunk. Well, that's a good distinction. Yeah. You know, and I didn't pick up on it, and I don't know why I didn't pick up on it, that you were actually talking about Lilith. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a succubus-type story. Right, it's definitely about a succubus. I mean, it's just about how, at his age, he's a, he's a teenage boy, mm-hmm. and how terrifying and silly it's, the concept of sex is at that right. age. I just want to represent how like I felt and how so many other teenage boys feel at that age about the idea of sex mm-hmm. and just make it as nasty as possible. <laughs> <laughs> she just exudes sex. And I love the way that he's drawn in and you kind of feel bad for him because at the end he's completely changed. She's taken his soul and oh, yeah. you know, he's tied to her. There's no emotion left in the guy. No, completely drained. So that was a fun story, man. A scary story. <laughs> Thank you. So you do a lot of a lot of writing, obviously, you're prolific, and you also do a lot of editing as well. And I kind of thought that, you know, from both aspects, being both an editor and a writer, you have kind of a unique insight into the, the horror genre and horror stories in general. And I was just curious, in your opinion, what makes a good horror story? I guess good tension, a good feeling of absolute dread. I mean, you don't go into a whole story to feel happy. Right. You want to feel good, raw emotion, strong characters and a plot not recycled from every vanilla-ass movie that's come out in the last <laughs> decade. That also helps. Yeah. Not to say that every movie that's come out in the last decade is vanilla. Right. A lot of them sure seem that way. Oh, yeah. A good example of something original would be Resolution, if you've seen it. I haven't yet, but it's, it's definitely on my list. Yeah, you need to. It's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it, I have this this conversation a lot of times with different storytellers that, you know, there's only a set number of stories that, that are out there. And basically, we're all reworking them and using and borrowing different elements. And it's kind of where you take your own unique experiences and, you know, a unique concept that comes to you and, and weave that into there. Oh, yeah. It's all about how you approach the idea. Right. I mean, um, have you read um, Paul Tremblay's new book, A Head Full of Ghosts? I haven't yet. No. He takes the typical idea of a child who's become possessed. But mm-hmm. He makes it so original. He adds 
in a reality TV aspect of it. I mean, it's just completely terrifying how he approaches the idea that's been done so many times, but he makes it his own. Yeah. So as a writer, what is the most difficult thing about writing a compelling short story? Honestly, hitting the world count. <laughs> I'm mainly a novelist, so I sometimes have trouble writing things of a less old world count. Mm-hmm. Typically, my short stories, they max out at about 1,500 to 2,000 worlds. Mm-hmm. But a lot of magazines and anthologies, they want a minimum of 3,000 worlds. Yeah. If I hit that past 3,000, I'm likely to never stop writing the damn thing. <laughs> Well, you hit a sweet spot with this one then, because you're, I think this is right around four or 5,000 words, just a little under. I think it's almost 5,000. Yeah. I don't have a lot of them that reach that high. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think that a short story is much harder to write. It's kind of been my mission for the last few years as I've been working on my short story. It's harder because, you know, it's like a beginning, it's a middle, it's an end, and you can't really waste any words there. Whereas with a novel, you can kind of explore more, I think. Yes, it's so difficult. You have to be kind of subtle about it. You have to use as minimum rules as possible to tell the best story you can. With a novel, you can just flesh out all the kill tools, the plot points, the subplots. You just Mm -hmm. don't have time to do that with something 5,000 rules in length. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, it's it's fun whenever it works, but yeah, I mean, it's it's hard sometimes. And I think that what I found for myself, if I have like an ending in mind, I have an idea in mind, it makes it a lot easier to try to get there. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. When I'm writing longer work, it's I don't really know. I kind of have a foggy idea of where I might be going, but it's I kind of let the characters run and do whatever they want to do. And I think that it's hard to do that in a short story. It is. Yeah. Like I'll begin with an opening scene. Like, yeah, that sounds nice. But what happens now? <laughs> but I end right. up just dragging it out and it's all of a sudden 25,000 molds in length and I yeah. can't do anything with that. No one wants that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as an editor, what do you wish writers knew about submitting stories? I wish they knew how to follow guidelines. I wish they knew how to let little writing breathe before submitting it. Yeah. They need to sit and sit and be reread constantly. Writing it and submitting something all in one day is a good way to let yourself down when I end up sending a rejection. Yeah. I wish writers understood that I don't owe them an explanation for why I rejected them too. You wouldn't constantly harass Macy's or McDonald's after they didn't call you back for an interview. <laughs> depending on how fucking crazy you are (laughs) that's true but i get as an editor i'm sure like i'm not the only one i constantly get emails well why did you reject this i don't have time to tell you it just didn't fit that's right move on you take the story and, and rework it and resubmit it someplace else exactly just people that i talk to and they don't read the work of that particular publication before they try to submit. I guess that's hard if you're doing an anthology, but if you're yeah. submitting to some sort of periodical. Yeah. Like lamp, like magazine, that's a good example. Yeah. They want only like something you would find in a twilight zone episode. If you send them something that's completely a stream and nothing but guts and blood, I doubt they want that. Well, has there ever been a time when you loved the story and you chose not to use it? Well, all the time, yeah. I mean, I mainly do anthologies, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> you just can't possibly accept everything that you like. You have to consider the budget. Say if you're paying one cent, two cents of old, you can't just keep 
accepting things, you're gonna go broke, and then <laughs> you end right. up on the street applying to McDonald's and asking why they won't call you back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reason I'm asking that question is because I know that sometimes you know people send work into different anthologies and publications, and there's nothing wrong with this. And other people read it and they're like, "Yeah, it's good." I don't understand why they didn't use it. So maybe, you know, instead of people sending you a bunch of emails and saying, hey, why didn't you accept my story? <laughs> they might just look at it and go, well, it's just, you know, he, he had a bunch of other ones that were great before mine. Right. I mean, a book also becomes pretty expensive the longer you make it. And if you begin charging like 25 bucks for a trade paperback, no one's going to buy that. Right. And some submissions, they just don't fit with what else I've accepted. Not everything is meant to go together. I mean, it's nothing personal. It's just about making the best book that flows together. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, is that the best anthologies that I've read, they have kind of a common thread and a theme where, you know, they all feel like they belong together. It's, you know, Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others, you know, (laughs) and and sometimes, you know, you'll get that one story that's just like, why would they include? It's a good story, but it doesn't fit. So I, you, know, you try to you try to avoid that, right? Yeah, exactly. So when when as a writer do you decide to abandon a story that's not working? I tend to give up pretty quickly when something isn't working. I mean, I try to sit on the idea for a few days, a few weeks to see what goes in my head. Mm-hmm. If I can't piece together at least a decent five, six scenes, I just give up. I mean, most ideas don't even get past the brainstorming process with me. Would you say you throw away more than you actually use? Oh, yeah, definitely. I've began novels. I've gone up to 25,000 rules and just trashed it and wasn't going anyplace. You know, that makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) So one of the things that you're involved in that I find very interesting, you're working with Lit Reactor and... They do a lot of great stuff for writers, and I I wish more writers knew about the resource. So I thought maybe I'd give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what they do, how they started, what you do with them, and some of the resources they have for writers out there. Okay, yeah. I don't know exactly how they began. I was only taken on staff last April. Oh, okay. They've been around since about 2009, maybe? Maybe 2011. But it's, they have an online magazine, which is what I do. I have, I'm a bi-monthly columnist on the magazine. We do a lot of writing advice, anything to do with writing, books. But we also have workshops that you can enroll in. And basically, you you post something you've written. And other people in the community, they read it. They provide feedback. It's a good family. But also, they also provide classes that you can take from many different writers like Craig Clevenger, who wrote The Contortionist Handbook, which is a fantastic book. I would recommend taking that class to anyone who's thinking about taking a class at the website for the really first time because it's a fantastic class. But they have dozens of classes anyone could take. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, there's 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 a lot of resources out there, but I think sometimes it's hard to find the best ones. And I think Lit Reactor does a great job. Yeah, definitely. So I got to ask you, what is the deal with the owls? <laughs> I, I wish I knew, man. I mean, one day I woke up in the woods and there was just one sitting on my chest, whispering the secrets of the universe into my mouth. <laughs> I haven't been the same since. Like sometimes I wake up and... I can't speak. I just begin hooting and I eat. And <laughs> I, I don't get it. That's fantastic. I would, I would see someone, but, you know, I don't have insurance. So, oh, well. 
Well, you know, they aren't what they seem, so. Exactly. Just ask the log. That's right. Are you excited about uh, Twin Peaks coming back to Showtime? I would be if I could ever find the motivation to begin season two. <laughs> I've seen season one about three times. Yeah. But I finish it and I go, okay, time to watch season two. And I just don't do it. <laughs> season two is awesome. I, That's where it gets I, really, really weird and twisted. And then I forget what happened in season one. So I'll rewatch season one and I go, okay, <laughs> let's do season two. And I just don't do it. Yeah. Well, it's know. on, uh, I think it's on Netflix now. So. It is. Yeah. That's how I keep watching it. I keep <laughs> watching it on Netflix. It's a long show. It is. It is. But the bad thing about that show is I can't watch it without coffee and pie. Right. Of course. You have to have that. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> So what are uh, some of the projects that you have coming up and, and some things that your fans can look out for? I have a book coming out sometime at the end of April called How to Successfully Kidnap Strangeholds. Mm-hmm. It's about a small press kidnapping some asshole who gave them negative reviews on Amazon. Oh, awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of based off of true events, but I can't get into it yeah. because of something to do with the law. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't want to we don't want to go afoul with the law. Yeah. You're working on a couple anthologies, I guess, as well? Oh, yeah, I am. I'm seeking submissions at the moment for an anthology called Lost Signals, kind of about radio transmissions. If you've ever listened to Welcome to Night Vale, of course. That's kind of what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm a big fan of Night Vale, a big fan of the whole concept of transmissions and signals being a little bit more than what we think they are. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have you um, seen or read Pontypool by Tony Bulgus? I have not. Uh, it's a fantastic um, movie and book about a radio station transmitting this zombie disease out, basically. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, and I actually haven't announced this yet, but the guy who wrote the book actually just signed the contract to write a submission for the book, Lost Signals. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Well, where can uh, fans get in touch with you and check out your work and interact with you? The bl- the best place to find out more info about me would be my website, www.tellsfromtheboost.com. Mm-hmm. And um, you, can, you can follow me on Twitter at Give Me Your Teeth. Yeah, that's a great. Where'd you come up with that, man? There's this old crat.com article by this guy named Sean Baby. Mm-hmm. And he had some image of the king from Bogle King. Mm-hmm. He was like laying in bed with some random dude. And the caption was, give me your teeth. <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest damn thing. So I used this. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I always wondered where that came from, man, because uh, yeah. it's it's out there. It's different. You know, I mean, it's not something that I it's, it's not tied to anything that you've written either. So that's why I was like, where did that come from? You're also on Facebook. You're pretty prolific on Facebook. Yeah, just Google, just type my name and it'll pop up <laughs> and just open your closet. I'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's your birthday today, so happy birthday. Thank you. And thanks again for you know coming on and, and talking to me. And thanks for letting me read one of your stories on the Wicked Library. I'm sure that everybody loved it. Let's hope so. Fish by Max Booth III. Copyright Max Booth III. Originally published on Amazon.com. Check the show notes 
for links. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foisek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. Production music included the Wicked Library theme performed by Anthony Rousick of Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Steve Montgomery of Dark Mood Music or Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with their permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Hicks on Fabulous production. Producer Daniel Foytek. Executive producer Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 605. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. Just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.